0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I'd invite you to open your Bibles to our reading this morning, which comes from the New Testament. Matthew 3, we'll read the verses 1 through 12. We hear there the words of the prophet John the Baptist, the last prophet in the long line of the prophets before Jesus Christ, the one who was declared by our Lord Jesus Christ himself to be the greatest of the prophets. And we will read the message that he brought to the people of God in preparing them for the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 3, the verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I. Whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Our text this morning is Isaiah chapter 5, the verses 8 through 30. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate the fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine, a homer of seed only an ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Their men of rank will die of hunger, and their masses will be parched with thirst. Therefore, the grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limit. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So man will be brought low, and mankind humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled." But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture, lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it. Let it approach, let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who exalt, who, to, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw, and as dry grass sinks down into the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist. Not a sandal thong is broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are strung. Their horses' hooves seem like flint. Their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Their roar is like that of a lion. They roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, he will see darkness and distress. Even the light will be darkened by the clouds. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this past week Thursday, the debt crisis was averted. The U.S. debt crisis. As you probably heard, because it was all over the news and it was potentially a serious thing, the U.S. governments ended their standoff. Reopened, came back together, and they cut a deal to avoid the possibility of the United States running out of the funds necessary to fulfill their debt obligations, to fulfill the bills that people are sending to them from around the country and around the world. What this crisis highlighted, the result that there would have been for the the government of the United States, was the real possibility of checks worth hundreds and thousands and probably even millions of dollars being cashed by people expecting that money and the money not being there. And those checks bouncing. See, a check is a, a sort of promissory note. It's a promise to the person who receives it that the person who has given that check has that money and that when you deposit that check, that money will go to you. So that would have been bad. That would have been bad for the government of the United States to have that happen. Would have been bad for them. Would have been a loss of face. But what about the person that's counting on that check? What would it have been like for them? Perhaps some of you have experienced this in business. You've been handed a bad check after doing a job. You're working on a large job. You're, you're counting on getting paid upon its completion. You yourself, in anticipation of getting paid, have, have also perhaps built up some credit for other institutions or for other people or, or for people that are working for you. And then you finally do receive your check to your great relief. But then when you go to cash it, the money's not there. You don't have the funds, but you still have the debt. and It still falls upon you to pay. What would be the result of that for you? That'd be bad. That's bad news for any company. It could be the end of your company. Be the end of your employees. Could be the end of your reputation. It could spell disaster. What the prophet Isaiah is saying to the people of God in the passage before us this morning is that they have received a bad check. They've received a bad check. While they think that they have peace and joy and that they have the opportunity and, and future before them they will discover discover that the treasury of sin from which their check has come is bankrupt and that promissory note that it has given is a bad check. They're living a sinful lifetime lifestyle they're living it up they're enjoying the pleasures of it for a time but Isaiah says it's a bad check. This will only come to ruin for you. Rather than wealth and prosperity and enjoyment, what it really promises, this sinful lifestyle that they have bought into, is ruin and destruction. In short, judgment. And so before us in this text from Isaiah 5, we have six statements of woe. Six Woe! six statements of covenant curse. And through these six woes, Isaiah reveals for the people of Israel and for us today, the bankruptcy of sin. He shows in the first place, the bad check of sin. He shows them that this is not going to turn out well for you. And secondly, in speaking of the judgment, he shows them the sure promise of sin. The sure promise of a sinful lifestyle. Well, it will not give you the peace and enjoyment and happiness that you're seeking. It will give you something else. You will face God's judgment. So first of all, the bad check of sin. As we said, there are six woes that are listed in this passage. Six woes that are spoken through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah. What is a, a woe? A woe, that's not a word that we hear very much anymore. As Isaiah says, woe to you. A woe is is simply a statement of curse. It's specifically, in this context, a statement of covenant curse. God had established his covenant with the people of Israel. You read about that. We heard that. Deuteronomy chapter 5, which we read this morning. God at Sinai had established his covenant at several times throughout their history, had reestablished that covenant with his people. And that covenant was God calling those people to be his own. God saying, I've saved you. You are mine. But when you are mine, this comes with certain obligations. You must be faithful to me. And if you're faithful to me, you'll be blessed. But if you're not faithful to me, you will be cursed. These woes are statements of curse against a covenant people who have embraced not the the righteous lifestyle of godliness, but the sinful lifestyle of unbelief and ungodliness. And so with these six woes, Isaiah exposes the particular sins that the people of God have been seduced by. And as we go through these woes this morning... We'll be able to jump fairly quickly to our modern context because the the comparison is right there. These woes are still meaningful for us today as God's covenant people. They're still meaningful for us today. And as you'll hear, they still resonate. These sins that the people of Israel so long ago fell into are the very sins that continue to tempt us and sometimes seduce us today as God's people. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to see the comparison. Perhaps, however, with the first woe, as we look at that one, that does take a bit of imagination. In verse 8, Isaiah says, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field. And so perhaps you're thinking, Look out, renovators and land developers, you guys are in big trouble. You add houses to houses and you join Fields to fields, but actually that's not what Isaiah is speaking about here. In order to understand what he's saying, you have to understand the land economy. How land worked in Israel, or we should say was supposed to work according to God's law. Each tribe in Israel had been given a portion of land. And each Family within Israel had be given a smaller portion of land so that all the Israelites had claim to land in the promised land in Israel. That was their gift from God. It was, it was a part of belonging to God and to His covenant people that you had land, you had an inheritance. Now it may happen, and it did happen, that under dire circumstances because of famine or because of Of plague or because of death or or for several reasons that an israelite would need to to get rid of their land they couldn't afford to look after it they they needed to sell it well god said that's okay you can do that you can sell it It has to be to another israelite but you can sell it because in the year of jubilee every 50 years all the land in israel is to go back to its original owner In this way, God both limited the riches of the rich. Sure, someone could acquire land, but after 50 years, they would have to give it all back. It was like hitting the reset button every 50 years. And also, the principle behind this, this law of jubilee, this giving back the land to the original owners, taught the Israelites something very important. That they were not to make themselves rich at the expense of their fellow Israelites. They were not to make themselves rich at the expense of their fellow Israelites. You could acquire riches, sure, at the expense of someone else, but in time all that riches all those riches would just go back to them anyways. And so the Israelites were to always carry around in their mind, what's the point? Why would I want to do that? They were to treat their fellow Israelites with respect and not enrich themselves at their expense. But here's the problem. Many scholars believe that this law of Jubilee was never practiced by the people of Israel. And if it was, it almost certainly was not being practiced now in the time of Isaiah. The rich in Isaiah's time are getting richer. The wealthy landowners are snatching up more and more land. And when you only have a limited amount of land, what does that mean for everyone else? It means they're losing their land. It means they're losing their riches. It means they're following deeper and deeper into debt and poverty and sometimes slavery. And so the Lord declares a curse on all those who are making themselves rich at the expense of others. That's what Isaiah is saying when he says you add house to house and join field to field. You're enriching yourselves at the expense of others, and you, when you do that, will be cursed. In fact, this is what Isaiah says, your great houses and your great fields that you're, that you're gathering are going to come to nothing. One day your houses are going to be empty, and your fields are going to be worthless. Isaiah is, no doubt, speaking of what's going to happen to the people of Israel as a result of the invasion of Assyria. In these chapters, Isaiah is constantly coming back and warning the Israelites that Assyria is coming. That God is going to use Assyria as the rod of his anger, the rod of his judgment. They're going to come, they're going to conquer you, and your great houses are going to stand empty because the Assyrians are going to drag you off to a foreign land. There is no profit in profiting at the expense of, of others. And isn't that true today as well? How long does wealth actually last? For those who gain wealth and, and who use especially sinful means to gain that wealth, how long does that last? Sometimes it lasts a lifetime. Well, many times it doesn't and it falls to ruin before then. And sometimes it gets passed to the next generation, but what do you often see in that next generation? You see the next generation being caught in the snare of greed. And idolatry. And it does hardly ever pass through several generations. And so the first woe of Isaiah is spoken to expose the bad check of greed. In his second woe, Isaiah is calling a curse not on those who drink alcohol, You have to pay close attention to what he's saying here. He's not saying this curse against those who drink from time to time or from time to time enjoy a banquet or a feast, but he's speaking against those who drink excessively and whose opulent lifestyles consume them so that, as he says, they're getting up early, not to go to work, but to drink. And they're spending all their time not doing good things, not doing the deeds of the Lord in verse 12, and, or having respect for the work of the Lord's hands, but rather enjoying banquets, inflamed with wine. They're so busy partying, in other words, that they aren't busy serving God and worshiping him as they ought. In their greed... They have forgotten the very purpose for which God gives material gifts. God gives us material gifts. God gives us things like wine and banquets and all things for us to enjoy for his glory and to use for his kingdom. And our culture today tempts us in so many ways to forget about worshiping God and instead to indulge ourselves with alcohol and with lavish living. The youths of today and of our congregation as well are tempted constantly to drink, smoke up, and enjoy life. The retiring baby boomers are called by our culture to take endless vacations and cruises and other self-gratifying pleasures. You've earned it you're told our culture excels at giving us so many tools with which to waste our lives mindlessly surfing the internet playing candy crush on our phones or soaking up every minute of vital sports tv that we can but here's the problem god didn't make us to waste our lives God hasn't given us these gifts to waste our lives pursuing them. He made us to worship him. God doesn't make his covenant with us, call us to be his people so that we can squander everything that he gives us. No, he gives them to us to serve for his glory. Woe to those who squander the gifts that God gives In the third woe, Isaiah says, you draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. The picture here is is a bit of a strange one. It's a a beast of burden, of course, carrying a heavy load with these these ropes. And the subtext is it's, it's not just the lazy in the second woe who are cursed, but it's the hard working as well. Isaiah is comparing the people to this beast of burden who's carrying this heavy load. But, but what's happening here? Well, Isaiah is saying that these hardworking people have become self-sufficient and cynical. Notice what, what these people are saying in our text. He says that these people are saying, Let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it. Let it approach, let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so that we may know it. These people are saying, listen, we're getting to work because we're not sure if God's ever going to show up to help us. That's what they're saying. We don't see God working now. Let us know when He comes and then we'll, we'll see about it. How pervasive isn't this attitude today? This cynicism. Sure, okay, I'll believe God when he shows up and actually does something for me. No, for now, I've got to work. I've got to work long hours. I've got to work hard. I've got to earn things. Because if I don't do it, no one else is going to look after me. This is the mindset that's in the world. And this is the mindset that we so easily become ensnared in. Let God do his work. I'll believe it when I see it. Interesting, isn't it, how this cynical attitude is directly connected with deceit and dishonesty as these people are carrying their heavy burdens with ropes of deceit. Well, if God is far away somewhere and he's not really interested in what we're doing, then, of course, he's not really interested in how we do what we do either. And so we can use the means of deceit and dishonesty, dishonest business practices, in order to gain what we want. But the result, as Isaiah exposes this, is that you're not doing anything. You're walking around like an ox, like a donkey. And the only burden that you're dragging behind you is the burden of sin. Congratulations. Woe to him who works hard in pursuit of sin. The fourth woe is very short, very profound, And, we dare say, very pervasive in our culture today. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. These people are turning morality upside down. That's very clear. They're turning morality upside down. Now, Isaiah is not speaking to the results of what happens. Although, that becomes clear. And he's not... Pointing out also the the reason why people are doing this, because some people might be doing this maliciously, they might know what's right, but calling it wrong, and they might know what's wrong and calling it right, or they may be filled with a sort of, of sincere misdirection. They just really believe that what's good is evil, and what's evil is good. But Isaiah's not speaking about their intention, he's saying about what they, he's speaking about what they do. This is what they do, they call good evil. And they call evil good. The people of God knew what was good because God had shown it to them in His Word. The people of God knew what was evil because God had told them in His Word. They had, they ought to know good from evil and evil from good. And knowing the Holy God, they ought to know not to switch those categories. And don't we today hear what God says in His law being called good? Sorry, what God says in his law is good being called evil. And what God says is evil being called good. Isn't this happening in our culture today? Disciplining your children. That's called child abuse. Sexual modesty is called unnatural. While immorality, whether premarital sex or homosexuality or self-gratification, is called good, normal, Acceptable. Killing unborn children is called a woman's right to choose. And killing elderly, depressed people is called mercy. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. The fifth woe is directed at those who are quote unquote wise. They're wise in their own eyes, that is. And again, just as God had given his law in order to teach his people the difference between right and wrong, God also taught his people what wisdom was. And God said there is only one source of wisdom and it comes from above. And so anything else that calls itself wisdom that does not conform to the wisdom that comes from above is not wisdom. They were apparently all sorts of people running around Israel in those days, telling the people how to live, and this is what we should do, and this is wise, this is what we need to do in our politics, and in our family lives, and in our society. But their wisdom was just made up, just a construct of their own imagination. And brothers and sisters, isn't that the kind of wisdom that we're constantly being sold today as well, and which we so easily buy into? From the self-help books on the shelf of the the bookstore, yes, I dare say, even the Christian bookstore. It sort of goes like the old Cheerios motto: just because it says Cheerios on the box doesn't mean it's Cheerios in the box. It's because it says Christian on the cover doesn't mean that it's wisdom according to God's word inside the book. And so we've got all sorts of self-help gurus telling us what wisdom is. We've got the talking heads on TV and the pop culture icons telling us how to do our politics and how to do our family and how to do our society, even our church. They suggest they have wisdom to dispense, but Isaiah says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and whose wisdom is just a figment of their own imagination. The sixth woe speaks of a certain kind of hero. Now the people of Israel needed heroes in those days because, as Isaiah will go on to speak about, there there is a threat. There is a threat. It's called Assyria. There's this kingdom on the rise in the east and they are going to sweep over nations and destroy them, leaving a swath of destruction in their path. Israel needs heroes. They need military heroes to fight about the threats on the outside. They need heroes to fight against the rot that's already beginning on the inside as people are leaving the ways of God. They need heroes in their, in their days, but Isaiah's not speaking about those kind of heroes. He says, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, champions at mixing drinks. Those are not the kind of heroes that God's people need. Israel needed leaders who would, who would use their influence and authority to work for justice on behalf of the poor. And instead they had leaders who were using their influence to make themselves rich and their authority in order to oppress the poor. Some heroes. Some heroes. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and who turn justice on its head. And so ends the six woes that Isaiah speaks. Many more details that we could bring out. But in so many ways, Isaiah exposes the sinful patterns of the people of God. And as he makes his expose, he's showing them that all these actions come to nothing. They come to nothing. They, know they do no good. You're going to be left with an empty house. You're going to go into exile. You're dragging along a load of sin. It all comes to nothing. He's exposing it for the people. A sinful lifestyle is a bad check. It promises success and happiness, but all it delivers is disappointment. But not only disappointment, because as Isaiah goes on to say, it also is sure to deliver judgment. Judgment. The sure promise of a sinful lifestyle, brothers and sisters, is judgment. You see, the most frightening and serious concern as we move into our second point about embracing godlessness and unbelief in a sinful lifestyle is not that you're going to be disappointed in the returns that it brings, and you will. You will be disappointed in the returns that a sinful lifestyle brings you, but that's not the biggest concern. The biggest concern of a godless and unbelieving lifestyle is that it promises God's judgment. It, in fact, calls upon God to bring judgment upon it because of who God is. God is just. He is the covenant God. He's the God who calls us to be his own, but who lays his obligations upon us. Yes, he is the God who has created this whole world and who lays his obligations upon every person, Man, woman, and child whom he has made in his image. God is just and the wages of sin is death. And in his justice, God punishes unrepentance and unbelief with a terrible but proper, fitting, right judgment of eternal condemnation and death. The metaphors that Isaiah uses in verse 24 show us the relationship between sin and judgment. That is that sin invites judgment upon us just like like straw is a fire's best friend and dry grass feeds the flames. An unrepentant and sinful lifestyle is fuel for the fire of God's just and holy anger against sin. What does a dead root invite? But more rot and what are dry leaves except fodder for the wind? Why is this judgment coming upon Israel and upon Judah? It's because they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty in verse 24 and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. They've rejected his ways. They've rejected his wisdom. They've rejected him. And so God will bring justice. And Isaiah here speaks about three types of justice. Verse 25 speaks about what you might call internal justice. Internal justice. And perhaps all that is spoken before in the woes speaks of a kind of internal judgment. That is, the result of a wholesale cultural embrace of sin is breakdown in society. This is, this is the judgment that comes to the alcoholic who continues to drink. His life falls apart around him. This is the judgment that comes upon a society that, that forgets what marriage is and what family is. Marriages and family are broken apart. This is, this is internal judgment. This is just what happens when you embrace sin in your lives. You begin to feel the effects immediately in the painful consequences that come as a result. Now we should make one thing clear. Just because you experience some consequences in your life does not mean always that you can draw a connection back to a particular sin. Because someone's feeling sick, doesn't mean that there is a sin directly connected to that. Just because someone's child is born with a disease doesn't mean that, that the parents sinned. Our Lord Jesus is very clear about that. When He's asked, who sinned here? The blind man. And it was, was it him or was it his parents? No, that's not the consequence that we're speaking about. But where there is a real wholesale embrace of sin, there you can expect The consequences. So you can work from there down, but you can't always work from down up. Let's be clear about that. But where you embrace sin, there is this sort of internal judgment. There are consequences that come as a result. But verse 26 and on speaks about a different kind of judgment. So there's the internal judgment, the consequences, the immediate consequences of sin. There's another sort of external judgment as well. As God, it says, lifts up a banner and and whistles, like a master whistles for his dog, God calls for the distant nations to come and to bring judgment upon his own people in Israel. And specifically who he's referring to here is the tireless and terrifying military machine of the armies of Assyria. Assyria oppressed the northern kingdom of Israel for 20 years before finally Israel rebelled and then Assyria came and completely destroyed them. Carried off thousands of people into exile. And at the same time, they would ravage and destroy huge parts of the southern kingdom in Judah. That's the external judgment. That judgment that comes when God brings Assyria to carry out his justice. But brothers and sisters, it doesn't end there. These two types of justice are just the, the the tremors that come before the earthquake. Because there is a third type of judgment uh, that Isaiah's prophecy looks forward to. The judgment that is the greatest of all, the eternal judgment. Yes, God executed his judgment on Israel when Assyria chewed them up and spit them out in 722 B.C., he did the same to his people Judah years later in 586 when the Babylonians destroyed them. He did the same in 70 AD when the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem and ransacked the temple. But these were merely precursors. These are merely foretastes, bitter foretastes of God's final judgment. When God will cast into hell all the unrepentant and unbelieving who have casted That bad check of sin. That judgment, brothers and sisters, is an everlasting judgment. It's an eternal torment. It's a death that never dies. And this is the end that awaits every sinner. Every sinner. Every person who by their actions calls God's justice upon their own heads. Every sinner that is. Who does not look to God for salvation. Because why does Isaiah pronounce these woes? Why does Isaiah come to the people of Israel and say, you are cursed for this and cursed for this. And God's justice and judgment is coming upon you. He is impressing the reality of God's wrath upon his people. To elicit a response from them. He is saying God's judgment is coming, but it has not come yet. You can still respond. And there are two responses that are possible in the face of God's righteous anger and judgment against sin. One is hardening. One is hardening. You hear what Isaiah says here. You hear what so many other passages that speak about God's justice is. And you say, I don't believe it. I don't think God would punish me for my sin. I don't really even believe in God. I don't believe in his judgment. I think I've lived a good life. I'm not a sinner. And you harden yourself in sin. That's one possible response. The other possible response is repentance. When you hear of God's justice and you hear these curses being called upon the heads of sinners and you say, those woes are being spoken against people like me. Those woes are being spoken against me. Those woes are for everyone who has bought the lie of sin. And haven't we all bought the lie of sin at some point? And therefore, who stands condemned within it. Those who say this punishment rightfully co- is coming upon me. And so you cry out to God, "O oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so please listen very carefully. Because here is the gospel that this passage anticipates. As Isaiah ends with no light, but only clouds of darkness. Here is the light that comes, that penetrates through the clouds. And brings hope. The gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed by Isaiah and by every prophet up to John the Baptist. That even if you feel lost in the clutches of sin. Even if you are one of the privileged, the covenant people of God who has been sold the bill of goods that sin has promised you, who's been running around living up a lifestyle that that sins bad check promises, there is still salvation for you. There is salvation for you. Yes, your sin and mine calls for God's righteous judgment. But here's the gospel. Here's the gospel that this passage anticipates. Jesus Christ has borne God's judgment on his own head. Jesus Christ has suffered God's justice against sin, and he's done it for every sinner who repents and calls out to him for mercy. He went to the cross to bear the full weight of God's justice. He went to the cross to bear the curse that stands against all of us conceived and born in sin. He has borne God's judgment against my laziness and cynicism and your greed, false wisdom, our deceit and cowardice, if. We acknowledge our sin and look to Him for salvation. These curses that Isaiah spoke, these covenant curses are true. This judgment was true. It came. The people of Assyria, the final judgment is coming. It is true, but it is also most certainly true that Jesus Christ, for all who believe in him, has taken God's curse upon himself so that we might not have God's curse, but his blessing. He bore God's eternal judgment that we might have eternal life. He was put to death so that you could live. Humble yourselves before the Lord, therefore, believe on the promise of Jesus Christ's perfect life of his saving work. And you will be saved. This is the promise of the gospel. This is what God promises through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news that you can take to the bank of God's mercy to find grace and receive forgiveness time and time and time again. There are always funds there. God never defaults on his promises. The treasury of Christ's work never runs dry. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.